Stuart Holman here with you again for the second last in our series on the book of 2 Samuel, focusing on chapters 18 through 21, where we see the disruption to God's kingdom caused by Absalom's rebellion in the previous chapters. David's son Absalom had led a coup against him and was trying to kill him. David had abandoned Jerusalem, hoping to protect himself and his household uh, in the wilderness. Uh, and so in chapters 18 through 21, Back in his customary role of military leader, David is organizing his troops. He's prepared to fight the rebel army of Israel under the command of Absalom. Uh, David had a battle-hardened unit with experienced leadership. Absalom, on the other hand, had a very large but diverse army with a newly appointed leadership because the real leaders were loyal to David. The battle lines are drawn up. But just before the battle begins, we need to take a quick flashback to an earlier scene in Absalom's life. Now stay with me on this. Uh, we need to remember what a handsome and hirsute young man Absalom was. So back in chapter 14, we are told, in all Israel, there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair once a year because it became too heavy for him, he would weigh it. And its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. That's about 2.2 kilograms of hair. Uh, so if you've ever heard of a male model named Fabio, that's the kind of territory that Absalom is in. Uh, okay, let's now go back to the beginning of 2 Samuel 18, where the battle for the throne of David is about to take place. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them, commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruiah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we're forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you're worth 10,000 to us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai and Ittai, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. Just an aside, Sometimes the Bible does have a sense of humour and a delicious irony. Despite David's feelings for him, Absalom is not portrayed as a man worthy of esteem. And so his final end is both comical and tragic.
When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I'd put my life in jeopardy, and nothing's hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and he plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet and the troops stopped pursuing Israel for Joab halted them. So David grieved and mourned the death of his beloved son and yet at the same time he had to fulfill his obligations towards his troops and to honour his troops who'd remained loyal to him. David was caught in a bind. But there was further complication. Having abandoned Jerusalem and his throne to Absalom, David now faced the delicate matter of whether everything would or even could go back to the way things were before. Would he be returned as king in Jerusalem or would the people reject him? The priests Zadok and Abiathar, the ones who acted as spies in Jerusalem for David, they rallied support and David was indeed returned and reinstated, except that a guy called Sheba, the son of Bichri, persuaded the northern tribes of Israel that they should turn their back on David and they should make him king instead. Civil war followed again and once more David's expert army wins the day squashing the rebellion. And so the remaining chapters of 2 Samuel have a very chaotic tone. There are all sorts of complexities and recriminations that cloud the latter part of David's reign. In short, David wants to reward those who've shown loyalty to him, while at the same time, he has to figure out justice for those who had betrayed him, which is never a straightforward matter. Compromise and confusion never seem far away. As the prophet said they would, intrigue and calamity follow David for the rest of his days. The sword never does leave his household. And we're none the wiser as to who his great successor might be. There are more military campaigns, more killings, and not much peace for anyone in these chapters. Despite the many great promises made to David, despite the very optimistic mood of the early part of David's reign over a united Israel, things are kind of falling apart for David. To borrow a phrase, there, there seems to be a lot of oysters, but very few pearls. Throughout uh, this um, uh, king's narrative from Samuel to Saul to David, our, our daily devotionals have often considered the way that Israel's national leaders and their leadership served to prepare the Christian reader for the coming of Jesus. Uh, Jesus Christ taught us that the entire Old Testament had been preparing us to better understand him and his ministry. And hopefully uh, we've become more confident in this typological way of reading the Old Testament. But what might the kingdom of God 
as depicted under the rules of Samuel and Saul and David, have to say to the church, the church which has inherited the mantle of God's people in God's place, blessed by God's rules. Certainly, God's kingdom today bears many of the marks of confusion, internal conflict and ungodliness. The same thing we saw in the Samuel narrative. It's clear that not all of those inside the borders are actually God's people. The kingdom is mixed. There are the godly and the faithful, but the evil and the self-seeking are still lurking around, and sometimes it's hard to tell who's who. Those in positions of leadership are prone to let their people down, and sometimes they act in the most inspiring and godly ways. Human leaders come and they go, come and they go. God's kingdom can seem to be a bit of a riddle, and it's confusing until we get our bearings again in the purposes of God as revealed in the Bible. God has committed himself to his people. His promises will not fail. His purposes in Christ will be achieved. They are assured and his great name will be glorified. In the midst of all of this, we are to keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ for he is the one who carries our hopes. He is the one whose rule in which we live. So in the midst of the mess, how might we regain or retain our clarity around God's purposes? There's a thought to ponder.